Friends, at this time in our service, we'd like to uh, share with you a continuing series of messages we have throughout the summer. We've called this series of messages, The Twelve, because it refers to the Twelve Apostles. Apostle, remember, is the Greek word apostello that means one who is commissioned and sent on a mission. They have a purpose. They have a message. They have the authority of the one who sends them as they are representing them. And Jesus, from among his large group of followers and committed disciples, he called out after a night in prayer, 12, one of whom he knew would betray him. As he said more than once, have I not chosen you from among the others, knowing that one of you is going to betray me? One of you is a devil. And that's why when you see the graphic on the screen of the 12, you can do math and count them up and count the rows very quickly. You notice there's only 11 of the 12 represented there. One of them missing, of course, is Judas from the town of Kerioth, Judas Iscariot, who was going to betray Jesus. And he's not represented there because he wouldn't have a little halo over his head in the old church icon, icon, iconic imagery that we had in paintings. And uh, so Judas, we're not going to forget him as one of the 12 because Jesus chose him for a reason. Later in this summer, uh, we are going to uh, look at the lessons from his life as well. But today we have the first of the heavy hitters, the first of the inner circle apostles, because not only did Jesus choose 12 But from among the twelve, who remember in the last half of his public ministry, in about a year and a half, he devoted the majority of his time in training, equipping, and teaching these twelve disciples to be his sent ones, his apostles. But from among those twelve, it seems that there were three, sometimes four, who were part of an inner circle that from among the twelve even, he equipped for something special, for leadership, for composing one day led by the Spirit. They would be writing portions of Scripture itself. Books like the Gospel of John, the Letters of John, the last book of the Bible, Revelation. These writings, including the writings of Peter, come from that inner circle. But strangely, at least to my way of thinking, one of that inner circle of that chosen twelve... His life ends suddenly, unexpectedly, and to us as humans, it just doesn't make sense. Scripture tells us, and it reminds us that our days are numbered. In Psalm 90, the psalmist writes, teach us to number our days aright. That means correctly. Add them up correctly. Know that they are limited. Your days literally are numbered. Teach us to number our days aright that we may gain a heart of wisdom. When you know that your time is limited, it brings things into focus. I've read and heard from people who receive that diagnosis from the doctor that their days are numbered, and they say there's nothing like a terminal diagnosis to focus the mind. To put things in priority. To let us know what's important and what's not. We have to get certain things done to major in the majors and let the minor things go. 
and you realize how much of what you spend your life and time on in this world is just that. It's the minor things. Things that in the long run don't amount to much. You see on the screen a strange and beautiful old gravestone. Years ago, during my years of training and going to school and starting a family and preparing uh, for uh, ministry, full-time ministry, uh, we did numerous jobs. My wife took her training and she was, she was a tailor, a seamstress, uh, with her training at Nate. I'm talking about the early years of these 40. And, uh, and to put food on the table, I worked, uh, in, in construction, construction worker. And then just through, uh, uh, strange circumstances during a, the great recession of the 80s, uh, I was unemployed. And we were, we were a young family and we needed a job and God provided a job as a funeral director of all things, a funeral director. And I remember the man, I think he hired me because I owned a dark suit. <laughs> he asked me, do you own a dark suit? I said, I'm going to be a pastor. He says, okay, you're hired. You know your way around a church. And boy, did I learn so much. I learned as much some days in the funeral home about life and death and the important things as I did in a day of classes at seminary. One of the things I love to do, because funeral directors, we often arrive early to set up the device and the greens and things at the graveside, especially in rural cemeteries. You have to go early and you stay after to take care of things as the grave is closed and everything's put away and the flowers are arranged. We often had time in those old cemeteries to look at those beautiful monuments. They weren't just vital statistics and maybe a little saying as many of our headstones or our flat markers are today some of them are beautiful works of art and they follow certain themes that reflect the way people grieve at different times the marker you see was one that was common in the 1800s though it's a much older symbol it's called the broken column the broken column, you knew if someone is buried under a marker like that, that they died young, untimely, tragically, a life cut short. Some of you are old enough to remember that terrible news uh, from Dallas, Texas, that a young president was gunned down during a political trip beginning his his for sure assured re-election the following year. President Kennedy, one of the youngest presidents ever to serve, murdered in cold blood. And when a person dies in an untimely way, often at a young age, from an accident more often, or some other tragic circumstance, we are left to grieve with questions. How could this happen? Why did this happen? And you know, and I, many of us here, we had friends and family who died young. And we often go that place in our mind, in our imagination, where we wonder what might have happened. We often think, as I do, they would be this old now. I can't imagine them this old. They'll always be young in my heart and in my memory. But imagine if they grew up and married and had children? What kind of father, mother, grandparent would they be? Unfulfilled potential. It's heartbreaking. 
It's a torture we put ourselves through. As the poet once said, sadder words in the English language there never were as what might have been. What might have happened? Well, when we think of today's apostle, this is where our minds go. Because today we are looking at the apostle James. And though we be tempted to look at his life after the wonderful beginning, how quickly it was cut off and unceremoniously he is gone. I want to assure you today that James had a life fully lived. He lived every day fully. And his number of days were the right number. And I take that on the testimony of Scripture. Oh, we think of him in his younger days. We think of him as one of those fiery young sons of Zebedee. There you see that beautiful picture by Edward Armitage called The Calling of James and John. That's a, that's a detail of it because in the full picture behind Jesus, as he's standing on the shore of the lake in Galilee, you see Andrew and Peter. He just called them from their boats a little further down the coast. Andrew and Peter, the fishermen, we know they were partners in business with the great sons of Zebedee. We saw Zebedee and a little bit about him on uh, Father's Day. Well, James and John, they come from an affluent family, far more affluent than Peter's family. We know that in part because remember when Peter and John followed Jesus after he was arrested in the garden, they reached the high priest's house and Peter, as a nobody, had to stay outside in the darkness. Why, John... One of the sons of Zebedee was known personally, it says, by the high priest. That's pretty lofty connections. So John was able to go right in. And then he came out and vouched for Peter as a man of more importance and took Peter in. And unfortunately, that's where Peter betrays Jesus again and again and again. But John and James, the sons of Zebedee, and as great as John is, the longest lived of the apostles, James was the big brother. All but one verse, James is named first. He takes precedence over John every time. James. And John is generally referred to as the brother of James because he was the most important. And it seems a little bit later that when Herod wants to hurt the church, and persecute them, and go after the leadership, even putting them to death, who does he arrest first? Not Peter. He goes after James. James is the outspoken, passionate, fiery one. And I guarantee you that whenever we see that there is division and arguments among the twelve, the apostles, over who's the greatest, who should be the leader, it's the alpha males, Peter and James, son of Zebedee, who are butting heads. Oh boy, I bet there were some fiery clashes on the lake as those two tried to work together and be part of the same company. You know, these were the these were tough fishermen. They were incredible men. And isn't it fascinating that from all of the 12, Jesus' inner circle was made up entirely of men from the same company, a fishing company from the north side of the lake in Galilee? These were tough leaders of men and that's who james was this is jesus calling them in their younger days 
Not only did Jesus call them and promise these fishermen of his inner circle that no longer would they catch fish, but they would be fishers of men. But Jesus gave them extraordinary training over and above. Now, those apostles received incredible teaching. When Jesus spoke to the public in parables, in private to the twelve, he would give them his insight and the meaning of the parables to grow their understanding and allow them to have a level of spiritual understanding. And something I forgot to mention earlier, those in the sanctuary have already picked up their fellowship cups. And yes, until we use these wonderful fellowship cups, we probably for some time won't be passing uh, physically bread for us all to breathe on and pass around the sanctuary. That is coming one day in the future. Offering plates and bread and cups will pass freely among us. But till then, we'll use these for a while longer. And just a reminder for those of you at home to push the pause button on YouTube and uh, make sure your elements are in place because right at the end of the service, we're going to share the Lord's table together. And while I'm doing a commercial in the middle of the message, next door, and I'm talking, where's the camera? I'm talking to you people next door in the fellowship center. You can come back to the Fellowship Center next Sunday for sure. We'll still have our simulcast next door. But following that, stay tuned. Children's Church may be moving next door. Is that right, Amanda? But next Sunday, still simulcast next door. So enjoy the air conditioning one more Sunday. You're invited to enjoy the air conditioning every Sunday, but you have to volunteer at Children's Church. That's going to be fun. You can still be over there, but you'll be there with all the kids having a great time, okay? Well, back to that extraordinary training of James the Great, the apostle, the son of Zebedee. Look at some of the things that James alone, along with Peter and John, and occasionally Andrew. I'm kind of thinking Andrew was probably there more often than we hear about, but because he was the behind-the-scenes member of the inner circle, his name's not always mentioned. One of the things incredibly that James gets to witness Jesus do, not the other of the 12, but James in the inner circle with his own eyes is Jesus had power over life and death. Remember, Jesus arrives from ministering to Gentiles back on the Jewish side of the lake and he's met by a distraught father. His name is Jairus. He's Normally, an enemy of Jesus as the head of the synagogue. They weren't always fans of Jesus. But he says, Jesus, my daughter is dying. And if you come and lay hands on her, I know you can heal her. And while they're on the way there, you remember the story from the Gospel of Mark. The people said, don't bother the teacher. Come on home. Your daughter didn't make it. Your daughter has died. Talk about an untimely death. And everybody stops dead in their tracks. And Jesus tells the twelve stay here except a few of them we read in uh, we read in mark chapter 5 verse 37 he did not let anyone follow him except peter james and john the brother of james you see who's the big brother in that group so james goes and he sees jesus take the little girl's hand she is dead and cold, lying on her bed. The house is full of mourners. Jesus throws them all out. And there with his apostles and her parents watching, he tells her, little girl, get up. You've been in bed too long. And the color changes. 
and the eyes flicker and her little chest rises. And the Bible says she not only got up, she jumps out of bed and Jesus warns them all, don't spread anything you saw here. And he says, by the way, this little girl's hungry. Get her something to eat. And that 12-year-old girl went from death to life and James saw this. Talk about an incredible lesson that he would never forget. Jesus has power over death. And Jesus is not only a godly man, but he is the God-man. And a few of them, only a few, were allowed to see Jesus let his divine glory shine through on the Mount of Transfiguration. In Matthew chapter 17, it says, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves, where they were joined by Moses and Elijah, and his glory shone through. And they saw him in his splendor. Just as John would not see him in that way again until on the Isle of Patmos, he sees Jesus glorified as he invites him to write the book of Revelation. Jesus in his glory. Boy, that would change the way you follow Jesus and what you thought of him and how your heart would be loyal to him. Remember, Jesus once as well in the Gospel of Mark mentioned that as beautiful as that great temple was in Jerusalem, that it was going to be destroyed. Not one stone would be on top of the other. And we're told in Mark chapter 13 that only the inner circle got to hear Jesus' important teaching upon the end time signs and his return. Mark 13, beginning in verse 3, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when these things will happen. When will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled? And then all that important teaching comes, not to all the 12, but to James. God is preparing him for something incredible. And Jesus, at the lowest point of his public ministry, as the shadow of the cross falls across him and the cup of suffering and death is at hand, Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane and he tells the twelve to wait here. But then he goes further in and he brings with him those that he wants to support him in prayer and to be with him and to watch him and to watch with him. Those he loves most in the world. In Mark chapter 14, we read that they went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him. And he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He said to them, stay here and keep watch. They were important to him. He knew that they would stand with Him and watch with Him and pray with Him. And though the Spirit was willing, the flesh was weak and they slept. Friends, when we look at the life of James and the extraordinary level of teaching, even extra teaching that he receives, we know that God must have something special for him. It's like, it's like 
there is a there is a light shining on Peter, James, and John that aren't shining on the others in the same way. They are destined for greatness. <laughs> and you didn't have to argue that with James. He was a passionate, he was a leader man, he was a man who led, and he knew that in God's kingdom, he was marked for greatness. James not only received that teaching, but he desired with all of his heart to reign with Jesus. He knew Jesus. He'd seen him in his glory. He knew he was going to reign as God's kingdom was restored. And he wanted to be right there at his right hand. He knew that's what his training was for. In fact, in Matthew 19, Jesus revealed that to them. Jesus said in verse 28, Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, literally when the world is born again, When the Son of Man sits on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now that planted a seed in James' mind. And I think part of that was, James says, twelve thrones at Jesus' side. I want a good one. (laughs) I want to be next to Jesus. I want to get and ask Jesus this before Peter does. You know, you knew there had to be some almost sibling rivalry between James and Peter. I've got to get my reservation in first. So when James and John and their mother come to Jesus with this request, I think it's kind of an apostolic form of James yelling shotgun. You know, he wanted the good seat shotgun. He runs up to Jesus and Jesus says, dude, He didn't actually say that. He says, dude, it's not my front seat to give. It's my father's. Here's actually the more correct reading of it. I'll read it right out of the Bible. I'll I'll quit freestyling here. That's a dangerous thing when it comes to the Bible. I understand. Okay, Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons. We've seen Zebedee not only lost his sons to following Jesus, but his wife as well. And likely in a parallel passage, it says her name was likely Salome. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it you want? He asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your kingdom. And this makes sense when we put it in context of the previous chapter that Jesus had promised they would be reigning with him on thrones judging the people of God, the 12 tribes of Israel. That's the request. But now Jesus breaks the news to them that though they are passionate and zealous to a fault, these are the sons of thunder, jealous for the glory of God and, the, and, and, and loyal to Jesus. Jesus informs them it's more than just that. Before we get there, to the glorious days of the kingdom, there's some rough road needs to be traveled in this life. We continue this passage, verse 22 and verse 23. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. 
These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. One day in glory we'll know who they were prepared for. Maybe Abraham, the father of faith. Maybe Moses, prophet, priest, king to his people. Maybe King David, a man after God's own heart. Maybe one of them, but Jesus says, this is not mine to give. This is the Father has prepared. But do you notice what Jesus asked them there? He said, you have in mind a crown, but Jesus knew before that you have the cup. He says the cup, not the crown. The cup speaks of suffering, sacrifice, and death. And they glibly, zealously answered, we can drink it, we can drink the cup. <laughs> and Jesus, knowing the, the end from the beginning, says, oh yeah, you will drink from the cup. John, living a long life and Those of you who have lived any length of time in this world know that those latter years are not easy years. James never went through those, but John did. Years of traveling and privation and persecution, imprisonment and banishment, years of suffering and sacrifice as well. They will drink the cup. And then Jesus uses this whole passage to teach what real service is, what their heart should be set on. Not a, cro- not a crown, but a cross. Verses 24 and following. When the ten heard about this, <laughs> you can imagine this, didn't go over. They were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. (laughs) Jesus says, you served, get that phrase, just as the Son of Man. As the Father sent me, so send I you to serve and to suffer and to sacrifice just as Jesus did. And friends, it's up to us to remember that Jesus began with the 12, the process of discipleship that's continued down to you today. You are the latest model of Christian the world has seen. It began with these 12. They made disciples who made disciples who made disciples and now it's you. This hurting, lost world, never been in worse shape, more people headed for a godless eternity, and your plan A for reaching them. Now, it's easy for us to skip ahead and let our minds dwell on the sunny slopes of heaven, but before the crown, Jesus says, you've got to drink the cup. The service and suffering and sacrifice that this world sees. James, he desired to reign with Jesus, and I know that desire was fulfilled, but before that, something terrible happened. All this preparation, all this zeal, all of this loyalty, all of this potential, the Bible says it is unceremoniously snuffed out like that. Because James died 
violently and young for the sake of Jesus. He was the first of the apostles. Not the first martyr. That was a few years, just a couple years before when on the behest of Saul of Tarsus to show his loyalty to God and his great zeal, Stephen was stoned. But of the twelve, the circle of twelve, which had been restored with the election of Matthias, of that twelve, the leaders, the missionaries, the beginning ones, the circle's broken with James. And it's never restored. He's not replaced as Judas was after he takes his life. It's broken once and for all. And he was the model because they all begin to die violently as they serve Jesus. But James, he was so young. If he reached 40, that would be about it. He's executed, beheaded with a sword in the year 44. Jesus, remember, is crucified, raises from the dead and ascends to his father's right hand in the early 30s. At that time, James was probably about 30 himself. And now he's about 40, just getting started. He's been there overseeing the explosive growth of the church in Jerusalem. They have been arrested. They have been flogged. They have been released. It's like the authorities don't know what to do with them. They can't handle them. These people won't quit preaching. The gospel won't quit spreading. And then they take drastic action. And he dies so young. The broken column unfulfilled potential. I don't want to remind you, there's so many people in our experience and in the pages of history who die young. Here's a few just off the top of my head. Alexander the Great conquered the world, the known world, dies mysteriously in Babylon at 33, probably poisoned by his generals who split up his kingdom into four pieces. Mozart, he started composing music at about three years old. And he didn't live to see his 36th birthday. Imagine the music that he would have written if he'd lived. Oh, how we need Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. today, a man who would not support critical race theory and say everyone should be judged on the color of their skin. But he knew from Scripture, from the bottom of his heart, that you should be judged not by the color of your skin, but by the content of your character. Imagine the difference he would make today. Cut down by an assassin's bullet at 39. I've seen the masterworks up close and in person of Vincent van Gogh who took his own life at 37. The maid of Orleans, Joan of Arc, who though she saw ecstatic visions and she became a rallying point for the people of France to drive out the English invaders. But she was captured and put on trial for heresy and burned at the stake. Joan of Arc only made it to 19. Pocahontas. Boy, when you get a Disney movie made about you, you have arrived. We know about her saving Captain John Smith and she mar- and, and probably saved the whole colony of Virginia. She marries John Rolfe, travels to England, dies at 21 or 22. She died so young. 
King Tut, Tutankhamun, famous for his tomb. We know he died because his tomb's what made him famous. But he, he died at 18. Caligula, perhaps the most deviant and evil of the emperors who planned before his his assassination to set up his own statue in the Holy of Holies of the temple in Jerusalem. (laughs) He died at 28. 28. Cut down by the Praetorian Guard. Assassinated by the Romans themselves. They were so, so young. Most of you here are older than these famous personages. And you wouldn't say they didn't live important lives or full lives. So let us not be tempted to think because James died young, never penned a book of the Bible, didn't travel on a great missionary journey, that his life was wasted somehow. Because in God's hands, no one is a waste. They're not. We read the account of James' execution In Acts chapter 12, it's very brief. For Stephen, we see chapters on his arrest, his defense, his execution. Not James. He's in the corner of one sentence in the context setting part of a chapter. Acts 12.1, it was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church intending to persecute them. Literally in Greek, it means he laid violent hands upon them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the feast, the unleavened bread. That was the Passover in the year 44. Herod was the grandson of Herod the Great, the nephew of Herod Antipas, who interviewed Jesus before his crucifixion. He was the last of the great kings. He ruled over all of Judea, Samaria, Galilee, just like his grandfather, Herod the Great. He was a favorite of the Roman emperors, raised by Caesar Tiberius, best buddies with Caesar Claudius, and earlier Caesar Caligula, who he slowed down him putting his statue in the temple. Because you see, Herod Agrippa, he felt down deep in his heart that he might be the Jewish Messiah. And so he sought at every point to please the Jewish people. And he found that these troublesome Christians giving the Sanhedrin so much grief, why arrest them? Let's kill them. And you kill from the top down. And he took the most visible, most vocal, greatest of the leaders of the early church first, James, puts him to death. And when he sees the round of applause he gets for that, he immediately arrests Peter and puts him under four squads of soldiers to guard him. But we know how that turned out. Peter was saved and released miraculously by an angel. But James wasn't. God didn't send an angel to knock the chains off James' wrists to deliver him from the sword. Why would that be? Friends, as we close, let's 
Let's set to rest those thoughts in our hearts about our own friends and family and acquaintances who have died young. Their lives are not wasted. They are still in the midst of God's will. God's will wasn't frustrated in their situation. In fact, in Luke chapter 22, going back to the garden, we see Jesus praying for God's will to be done. After he left the inner circle, he said it withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them and knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. The same cup that he told James and John he would have to drink and maybe one day they would drink as well. It was God's will for him to drink it. And he drank it down. So I am sure that James' death is God's will. Why didn't James get two chapters like Stephen did? I think there's a lesson there. The events and the Lord in James's life are far more important to record than his death. Because for a Christian, the death isn't the end of the story. It's just an event along the way. And from the view of heaven, when you're on the highest mountain looking down, all of the hills and valleys below, they look like a flat plain because of your perspective. <laughs> from James' perspective today, though his death at the time may have seemed insurmountable, it's small in the greater scheme of things. It puts everything in perspective. James' death galvanized the church to prayer for Peter. They didn't gather and pray fervently for James. But after seeing the result of that, they committed themselves to prayer and the church continued to grow. As the early church father, Tertullian of Carthage, once said about Christians, he wrote in a letter to the Roman governor of North Africa. He said, The oftener we are mowed down by you, the more in number we grow. The blood of Christians is seed. <laughs> you can kill us. But there's going to be more of us tomorrow. The blood of the martyrs is like seed. And whenever the church has been persecuted throughout history, it grows. It never fails. It excels. This happened through James. The church recommits to prayer. Peter is delivered. And the gospel spreads beyond the confines of Judaism and breaks into the Roman world and the Gentile world is saved as well. But for James personally, his part in the story was done. For all that preparation, he had about 10 years of ministry growing the church in Jerusalem, gets it off to a good start, and then he's called home. Called home. And that's not a bad thing. Friends, never feel sorry for our loved ones who go home to be with the Lord. If anything, they should feel sorry for us who are left behind a verse we often overlook found in Isaiah chapter 57 speaks of this. The righteous perish and no one ponders in his heart. Devout men are taken away and no one understands that the righteous are taken away to be spared from evil. Those who walk uprightly enter into peace. They find rest as they lie in death. They go into the peace of God, the shalom, where all is made right. They are whole and happy and healthy and home. 
<laughs> I'm jealous of them. And though John lived to be a hundred years old, I'm sure there wasn't a day goes by that he didn't miss his fiery big brother and often thought, Lord, why did you take James and leave me here for all these years? Why couldn't I have gone home at that time and left James behind? But it wasn't God's will for that because God has a plan for each one of us. The psalmist reminds us in Psalm 139 that while you are yet a baby in your mother's womb, God knows you and loves you and has a plan for you. In Psalm 139, verse 16, it says, All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. James didn't die a day, an hour, or a minute too soon. He died at God's time for him. He lived a full life, a faithful life, and a fruitful life. May we do so as well. In studying for the message this week, I came across an old, old book written by a Scottish preacher and teacher. When you hear a Scotsman teach the Bible, it seems to carry more weight. It's like Alistair Begg or one of the great teachers. When they have that Scottish accent, you just pay attention. I've often wondered if I go to Scotland, if I would sound smarter. Because when I hear a Scots preacher, they sound smarter and more authoritative to me. Does it go the other way? I hope so. Alexander McLaren, he wrote a series of wonderful expositions of the books of the Bible. And in his little commentary, because his commentaries aren't technical, they are preacherly. He tells you wisdom from them. But he does a wonderful thing when it comes to that one sentence description of the death of James. He says, how could it be so small? Tucked away in one sentence. He says, there's a way to understand it when you contrast James to four people. First, he contrasts James to Stephen, the first martyr, and why Stephen's account was so much longer. And then he talks about James as compared to Peter. And then James dying so young and John, his brother, living so long. And finally, he compares James to his younger self, the fiery, impatient James, and how he meets the end of his life and how his dreams, which he shared with Jesus, the crown, the throne, reigning and ruling at your right hand, how it seemingly was disappointed in his untimely and early execution. But in his wisdom, McLaren writes these words upon the death of James. And so our dreams get disappointed. And their disappointment is often the road to their fulfillment. For Jesus Christ was answering James's prayer, grant that we may sit on thy right hand in thy kingdom when he called him to himself. By the brief and bloody passage of martyrdom, James said when he did not know what he meant, and the vow was noble though it was ignorant, we can drink of the cup that thou drinkest. And all honor to him, 
he stuck to his vow. And when the cup was proffered to him, he manfully and like a Christian took it and drank it to the dregs. And I suppose went silently to his grave. But the change between his ardent anticipations and his calm resignation and between his foolish dream and the stern reality may well teach us that whether our wishes he fulfilled or disappointed, they all need to be purified. And that the disappointment of our wishes on earth is often God's way of fulfilling them for us in a higher fashion than we dreamed or asked. Lord, I want to be by your side. And so he was. The first of all the twelve to be called home to Jesus' side was James. And before Peter got to take his seat, (laughs) James was home. He came home first. God answered his prayer. Friends, today we've seen James say, I can drink the cup. We've seen Jesus say, Lord, take it away, but your will be done. And he drank the cup. And on the very eve of his suffering, Jesus took the cup from the ceremony of the Passover, the cup of blessing, and he gave it new meaning and it became it became the cup of remembrance to remember the blood of Jesus which would be shed for your sin and mine. The Bible says that as often as we do it, we should do it in remembrance of Jesus. James doesn't take that cup any longer. But we remember the Lord's death until He comes at His second coming or when He comes for you at the moment of your death. Until then, we remember. So whether you're here at home or in the fellowship center, I'd invite you to take the cup. If you have the fellowship cup, you can begin crinkling, taking back the taking back the uh, cellophane to make the wafer available. And as you do that, I'll read the familiar words from the book of Corinthians, Paul speaking of the Lord commemorating the cup to us. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night He was betrayed, took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. You preach it loud until he comes. With the clouds or for you personally, we proclaim the Lord's death. As we prepare to take the element which reminds us of the body of Jesus given freely to the cross. Let's pray and give thanks. Heavenly Father, just as our big brother in the faith, James, Lord, he wanted to be with you so bad. And he said he was willing to drink the cup if it meant he would be by your side. Lord, he did not realizing the suffering 
and sacrifice that that entailed. But how could it be any different when we see, Lord, that you are master, teacher, our savior and friend. You drank the cup for us. You poured out your blood on the cross on our behalf. Your body was given freely. And Lord, you have told us that this bread reminds us of your body sacrificed for us. Lord, we thank you and praise you for that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Jesus says, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Amen. After supper, Jesus took the cup. And as he gave it new meaning, let's thank God for that meaning today. Let's pray briefly. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Unending. More powerful and greater than all our sins. Lord, thank you that Jesus not only drank the cup, but he poured out his blood for us. And as we drink this cup today, it reminds us of his sacrifice. And it reminds us, Lord, that if we want to be with him one day, we need to be prepared in this life, Lord, to follow in his steps. Not only to die, but to live for him. Lord, sometimes the easiest thing in the world is dying. And the hardest thing is living for Jesus. Lord, in this world we live, as people say, we're foolish, we're naive, we're crazy for believing in that Jewish teacher from thousands of years ago. Lord, we know that He lives. And we love Him because He first loved us. And that love, Father, was shown to us fully as Jesus gave Himself for us on the cross. And so, Lord, we once again sanctify and remember the sacrifice of Jesus. And we drink this cup knowing that He shed His blood for us. We proclaim it. We let the world know that Jesus loves them so much. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Jesus said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Amen.